0: I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live. We bring you guests from around the world. I want to welcome you especially on this feast of the great St. Andrew, the apostle and brother of St. Peter. Tonight we'll talk with an individual who in the past did not believe that Christ was really present in the Eucharist, not until he began his own objective research into the issue. And we'll also see how, if the church's teaching on the Eucharist is true, it would likely become a game changer for everyone who calls themselves Christian. But before we get to that conversation, we'd like to speak briefly with EWTN's John Elson about some new programs coming up in the next few days. And you don't
1: want to miss these. John What have you got for us today? Father, it's good to be with you. Thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity to promote these new programs. The first I'd like to talk about is entitled The Passion of St. Edmund Campion. And this Mm -hmm. will be premiering tomorrow, December 1st, the feast day of St. Edmund Campion at 3.30 p.m. Eastern. And this program tells the story of this great uh, Jesuit missionary priest who was martyred um, in Elizabethan England in Mm -hmm. 1581. And the story, his story, I should say, is told by the people that knew him best, uh, Father Robert Persons, Mm -hmm. uh, Henry Walpole, and even we have a a dramatization of of the priest hunter, George Eliot, who was responsible for the authorities finding his location Mm -hmm. and his eventual capture and martyrdom. So we're very excited about bringing this original film to our audience. What also makes this film very special, that it was filmed in the castles and houses in, in England in which uh, St. Edmund Campion ministered. So it's a very unique experience for our viewers. The other program I'd like to talk about is entitled The Way of St. Ignatius. And this will premiere on Sunday, December 4th at 3 p.m. Eastern. And what we have with this program, it's an acquired documentary filmed on location in northeastern Spain, along, as I mentioned, The Way of St. Ignatius, in Spanish, the Camino Ignaciano, and this is the route that St. Ignatius of Loyola himself took from Loyola uh, in Spain all the way to Manresa where St. Ignatius composed his spiritual exercises Mm -hmm. as you well know. Mm -hmm. What makes this pilgrimage route so interesting is that it's the physical route that St. Ignatius himself walked more than 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. So in the program we have a Jesuit priest leading two young men and two young women along this route during which they learn more about St. Ignatius and his spirituality. So we're really excited to bring that uh, program to our audience. Finally, next Thursday, December 8th, on the Solemnity of uh, the Immaculate Conception, at uh, 3.30 p.m. Eastern, we will be presenting a new docudrama entitled The Message of Lords. Uh, So this is a a program that will combine dramatizations of the various apparitions that Our Lady made to St. Bernadette Soubriot in 1858 which will be punctuated and, and interspersed with uh, expert uh, commentary to help viewers understand some of the concepts and teachings of Our Lady uh, during those 18 apparitions. Mm-hmm. So we're real excited to bring these three programs to our audience, and we're just so grateful to, for, to our audience for their prayers and support that make all of these possible.
0: Oh, no, these look very, very good. And being familiar with, especially St. Ignatius and St. Edmund Campion, you know, we're happy that we're doing that as well as the peace on lord this is terrific john thank you, thank you very much we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with tonight's guest so please stay with us WELCOME BACK. OUR GUEST TONIGHT IS A CATHOLIC DEACON AND HE'S BEEN DOING WHAT DEACONS ARE SUPPOSED TO DO, WHICH IS HELP THE FAITHFUL BETTER UNDERSTAND THE FAITH AND THE TEACHINGS OF THE CHURCH. SPECIFICALLY, HE IS ADDRESSING THE PROBLEM OF A LACK OF UNDERSTANDING AND A LACK OF BELIEF IN THE REAL PRESENCE OF JESUS CHRIST IN THE HOLY EUCHARIST. Three years ago, a Pew research study found that more than one-third of all Catholics who attend Mass at least once a week believe that the Eucharist is only a symbol. Also, that the bread and wine do not actually become the body and blood of Christ. So to help people better understand the Church's teaching on the Eucharist and strengthen their faith, He wrote this book called, For Real, Christ's Presence in the Eucharist. So please welcome tonight's guest, Deacon Dennis Lambert. Deacon, welcome. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. Very much glad to have you here. And, you know, this is uh, the book you wrote um, on Christ's Presence. And, you know, you begin in your book talking about this Pew Research right. But before we get to that, I'd like to get to your own personal story, because this was something that you also had to confront uh, the faith in the real presence in your own life. How did that come about? Yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, again... The reason I wrote the book was, it was kind of twofold. For the reason that you spoke of, that there is just a giant need, you know, for promulgation of the truth and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And the second reason was because it's personal. It's it's something that, you know, affected me. I think you, you may have mentioned at the, the beginning of the, of the show, I was once a non-believer in the Eucharist, in, in, the, in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sh- it shouldn't have happened. You know, I, I was a good... Cradle Catholic. I came from two wonderful Catholic parents, you know, just very, you know, very faithful. They took us to church every Sunday. You know, the little Lamberts were all spit polished, all ready for Mass. We always stayed. I remember we always had our own pew, like good Catholic families, right? Mm -hmm. We were uh, second row in the center section, you know, and I actually remember my dad. uh, I wonder if he knows, remembers this or not, but I remember. Like he'd have this habit of every three seconds kind of leaning forward and back. And I remember always looking up and I would do it with him. So dad, if you're you're watching tonight, something I just thought of, I don't know, out of the blue, but I mean, it's just just great family. They were very involved in the church. We had a, a Catholic school, grade school attached with our church. In fact, you know, anytime my parents had a party or a social event, we'd have a you know a house full of priests and nuns. You know, so I grew up in this this really great environment. Um, I went to that Catholic grade school. Uh, after that, I went on to Catholic high school, Carmel High School in Mundelein, Illinois. Mm-hmm. There, are two significant things that happened in my, my life. I met my wife there. And I also got really turned on to the whole topic of my faith, the Catholic faith. And that was done through a Jesuit priest uh, who was there, who I had the good fortune of having teach me both my junior and senior year. Mm-hmm. And he had this credible, incredible ability to to really you know, talk about faith from both an inward and an outward perspective. Mm -hmm. There was an intellectual component, you know, looking back, you know, to understand what scripture says, I remember him talking about you really had to look at the culture of the time, you know, what Mm -hmm. the Jewish faith believed and all this kind of stuff, and it just lit a fire on me. I was, from that moment on, faith, religion was a very, you know, important thing, but again, it also went inward. Uh, He later on married my wife and I, by the way, But, uh, but, then I went on to college you know and during that time I developed all these questions about my
0: faith you know I had a little were with these questions coming from your fellow students from your teachers or where
2: no you know actually father you know I, I, I can't actually recall I'm getting a little older <laughs> in memory I can't actually uh, recall the genesis of what the questions were but I, I start had some things about my faith about the Catholic faith um, and It was, was, you know, not only that, but I was like having these little, my little treaties against the church. This is wrong with the church. This is wrong with the church. Mm -hmm. All this kind of stuff, and it hit me at at that period of time. And maybe it was. I just, I just can't remember. But at about that time, I was invited to play softball on a a friend's uh, little, non-denominational, you know, Protestant church, and started playing baseball with these guys and I'm sure a lot of that fed into the questions sure, I had without sure. question. The, the crucial... A mis-
0: certain element of fellowship in the context of having your own questions sort of moved you along?
2: Yes. Well, bottom line, they started, you know, having answers to my questions. So, you know, I found myself going there, going to church there, doing Bible studies and they were very receptive of having a Catholic, you know, sure. to, to help show the way. And I was actually blown away at the time because the, all the questions that I had, they had answers to right there in scripture. Scripture, we never look at scripture, you know, in a Catholic faith, so I thought as far as that goes. So I thought I, I found a home, you know, but like the parable of the sow, the seed, the, the sower and the seeds, Thankfully, I was like that seed that landed in rocky soil. You know, I sprang right up. I really loved everything I was hearing. I, I was there. I was like, yeah, right on. But after a while, things were just disconnecting. Uh, some of the things that they were, were, you know, sharing with me just started not to make sense. So I did what I should have done from the get go I, I made an appointment at my old parish, my parish. Uh, to speak to the new associate there about some of my questions. And that's the mistake if anyone, you know, if if you ever have any questions, ask, you know, go to a priest or someone knowledgeable about the Catholic faith. So I make an appointment and I go in there and guess who was there? The new associate happened to be my religion teacher, Father Tom, from from high school. I don't know how he ended up as, you know, in a diocese yeah. in that role, but there he was, you know, divine intervention, I think and sat down, we spoke, all the questions were answered. You know this, you, you are the well, but our Catholic faith is just so deep that you know. Yeah, if you have yeah, questions, yeah. they're there. So I returned, so kind of returned to the church. I actually remember physically the day I returned to the church. Uh, I walked down the aisle, kind of, we had a new church, it had a little slope to it and I saw my mom and dad there. I slid in the pew right behind them. I tapped my dad on the shoulder and I go, dad, I'm back get emotional about that. He turned, Father, and he says, I was just praying for you to come back to the church. Wow. I mean, how so, I... Th-
0: part of the importance of that is I know so many parents whose children have drifted away. Yeah, Sometimes, yeah. more today, more often than not, to uh, nothings. Non, none, Yeah, right, nuns, right, right. the non-anything. Right. Uh, because they... Oftentimes, they don't know enough about the faith or about atheism to really make a decision. Or they think they know, but they don't. Yeah, but I think a lot of times yeah. they know they don't know. <laughs> so they just stay non yeah. until they can get to the point of asking the questions or finding information. But a lot of them just don't know where to start. No. And that's very important that you had enough background to. Start going back. Yes. Plus well, parents praying for you. Amen. No.
2: Again, there are, I know probably more families where there is somebody left. I think that's probably a common phenomenon. You know, this is such a common thing that we have some you know somebody in our family's not no longer with us in the church. You know, and St. Monica's <laughs> getting a workout from me and I'm sure others. Yeah. But even though I was back And, but, and just to my, to my dad.
0: I love it that there's a parish in Chicago, St. John Cantius, that for many years had a novena, ongoing every week novena to St. Monica. And people would put their little petitions in, you know, uh, with a relic of her and uh, pray for their relatives. And there was even one lady in her 90s who finally came back to the faith. So it's yeah. very important I, to pray. Will,
2: I'll talk on that too. Coincidentally or not coincidentally, we, we have a statue of Saint Monica at, at our parish, Corpus Christi Parish in in Ahwatukee, Phoenix area. And there's a slot there for people to put their their intentions for people, you know, to come back as far as that goes.
0: Well I think you need to start that novena going over there. Oh, get people that, praying every week. That's that'd be a good if if I,
2: if I, if I why we're on the topic. I just had this experience recently. And then I'll get back to, you know, part two of my being back, but not being back. Uh, I I do marriage preparation at at my parish. And I had um, a woman approach me who I knew, who I know, you know, from the parish. And she said, you know, my son wants to to come and talk about getting married in the church. And I said, well, that's, that's great, you know. And then she shared with me a story that he had been away for so long, Mm -hmm. you know, from the church. She didn't think that there was a chance, although she kept on praying St. Monica. And then she said she was in line for confession one day, and who should show up? His, her son walks in. Hi, mom. Gets in line and goes to confession. Wow. You, so again, this is this is a story. Can't I, underestimate I, t- that. I tell people that that think it's a hopeless cause to keep yep. on praying. Yep. So back, you know, to to seeing my parents. I was actually, you know, this is important, you know, that I was back in the church physically but i left that experience of that non-denominational church for 2 years dinged i came back still not believing in the real presence of christ in the eucharist mm-hmm. having problems with our mother and things like that i was back for many years you know as a cafeteria catholic kind of guy you know not really thinking about it so even though i was back you know outwardly inwardly there was still some more work to a do a lot of work to be
0: done amen amen yeah and from talking to most wives they think that their whole life, their husband has work to do. But that's another question. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So here, um, I, I, the issue of the Eucharist is not just a problem you had. This is, uh, the, tell us a little bit about this Pew research. What, what was going on with that? Well, again, you kind of nailed
2: to me what, what the most important part of that research was. In 2019, they did a, a survey, and they are well regarded as a company that does valid and good surveys. Right. right. Yeah. The, the thing that made the news was that the, the survey found that two-thirds of all Catholics don't believe in the real presence of Christ. I didn't have such a hard time with that because the reality is a lot of people are Catholic just in name. They, yeah, they don't go to church. They're anymore. baptized, and if someone, someone, you know, they don't go to church, and, you know, what's your faith background? Oh, I'm Catholic. So that wasn't, I mean, it's still sad, don't get me wrong. But the harder data that I found that, 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 that really kind of affected me was what you shared that one third of all people who attend Mass regularly, Catholics stem attend Mass, don't believe in the real presence. They believe it's a, it's, it's a symbol.
0: Yeah, they're at Mass on Sunday, usually. All right. And they're there quite a bit, at least once a week. So every week they're there, and they don't believe what the church teaches on the Eucharist right. as the real presence of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now, so I, I said it affects me. It affects
2: me now, but I was one of them. I, I, under, I understand totally You know, how this can be because there I was. There I was to the point where, again, I, I, maybe I should put this in my story about well, I'm still in that story, you know, just about my my faith journey. You know, I had a moment, you know, with my children. They were getting ready to make their their ho- their first Holy Communion, and the grade school the school wanted us parents involved in this whole process. One of the things they asked us to do was create a communion banner. You've we've all seen them, the nice little banners you put them outside that your pew and your family sits there. Um, so they wanted us to do to design the 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 the, the banner, create it. And most importantly, sit down and talk to your kids, your children, my children, about what it means, what's on that banner and what communion means. I was the designer, my wife, she was the artist on it, but I told her what to put on it. And then I was the one who sat down with my children. What I had on there was the words, I remember, and there's a chalice and my sons and daughters' names. And there's nothing wrong with I remember, except that this was very intentional on my part. When I sat down and talked to my children about making their first Holy Communion, I talked about how it is a remembrance of what Jesus did. When you receive communion, remember what Jesus, that he did for you, that he died on the cross, and and this, that, and the other thing. Not a peep for me was about, you are receiving our Lord. And to me, to this day, that is something that just crushes me, that I left out the most, that the truth, you know, because I didn't believe it.
0: I think when people focus on their remembering and making Christ present, it's a bit of a slip into what was once called the Pelagian heresy. In other words, basically it's I'm doing the remembering and I'm making Christ present. Yeah, right. That doesn't work. And that's <laughs> not the truth. Right. It is... THE WORD OF JESUS CHRIST, THE INTENTION OF JESUS CHRIST, THIS IS MY BODY. AND IT'S THE ACTION OF THE HOLY SPIRIT. THAT'S WHY THE PRIEST PLACES HIS HANDS OVER THE GIFTS RIGHT BEFORE THE CONSECRATION IN THE ROMAN RITE. IN THE EASTERN RITES THEY DO IT RIGHT AFTER THE CONSECRATION. Uh, We IN MARONITE RITE WE FLUTTER OUR HANDS TO SHOW THE COMING OF THE HOLY SPIRIT. In either case, it's the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that changes the bread into the body of Christ and the blood and, right. uh, from His wine, uh, from the wine to into His blood. And it's not my act of remembering; it is what God is doing that is key. Amen. So, this th- this is something that you needed to. Fill in for your for your own children uh, at their first communion, eh? Right. Well, again, at, at that time, I, I, I bl-
2: believed I was telling them the truth. You know, I believe that sure. that I, I was setting them straight the reality of 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 a symbol. You know, now I look back and, and it pains me to think that I, that I withheld the, this mm-hmm. s- this crucial truth.
0: So, yeah. 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 Well, this is something though. I don't think you're alone. Obviously, you are not alone. If two-thirds of Catholics who go to church on Sunday don't know or believe this, and I don't think it's a willful rejection. No. I don't think it's uh, when it's a good distinction for our audience to pay attention to. Formal heresy is when you know what the church teaches and you say I don't believe that. I don't want to believe yeah, it. Absolutely. Informal heresy is that well, I didn't know that that was what we were, we were supposed to believe. I, I just didn't know. And and it's still incorrect that, you know, not to believe it, but that's called informal heresy and it doesn't have the kind of um, onus, the, the kind of uh, culpability of formal heresy right. and this I think is due to a lack of knowledge absolutely of the teaching of
2: absolutely the and and I experienced uh, growing up again I think we we hit a period for a number of decades of just poor catechism you know and I think about myself I went to Catholic grade school Catholic high school again I'm the, that junior senior year was great but up until then I think I was poorly catechized and I know I wasn't alone. I think it's, it's pretty well, well documented. So you're right. It's not necessarily the fault of some people. It is in a sense that we have to take ownership, you know, and invest in, in our faith. And this is the source and sum of our faith. So I'm not saying, you know, that there's no culpability, but bottom line with, with this this whole, topic has dri- driven me to do is to produce something like this mm-hmm. book to go out and speak on the topic because again, basically through our baptism, we're all, we all share in the, the, the mission of the church. And yeah, Pope Paul VI said, you know, basically the church exists to evangelize. Mm-hmm. Pope John Paul the Great then takes that in his new evangelization and kind of reorientates the mission fields a bit to our own neighborhoods, to our own pews. Mm-hmm. So if that is the mission field, Father, you know, and we have upwards of one third of people not believing in the source and summit of our faith, we have a job to do. Yeah. So the call of the book it ends. There's kind of three parts to the book. You know, what is my my backstory coming from no faith or lack of faith in the Eucharist to total faith? You know, to the apologetic importance, and the third part is the most important part. How it is that anybody that reads this book can go forward and teach this or share this truth about the Eucharist to those who don't know.
0: One, one of the important aspects of this in your, your second part of your book on apologetics is that you show uh, the opposite of what one of my friends in graduate school had said. He, uh, when I was in grad school, it was a Protestant university And he said, Oh, you Catholics invented this idea of transubstantiation in the Middle Ages. I got the same thing when I was at that church. Right, 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 right. This is their standard belief. Is that true? No, and you know,
2: okay. and you know it. <laughs> He's playing coy right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely not. And that's what my search because again, that was something that was drilled into my head that that the Eucharist is the theology that was made up, you know, at some council in the church, mm-hmm. you know, blah blah. blah. So that that sent me in part searching too. And no, if you, you it, it traces back to Jesus. I use an analogy of a relay race in that that apologetic section, um, and basically I think a com- carpentema it, it puts everything in nice neat compartments for us to understand but also shows the continuity of the truth. So yeah. I use the image of a relay race. relay race has four legs, right? But it's one continuous race. So leg one is Jesus. What did Jesus teach? So we examine John 6, the Last Supper, even the Our Father, mm-hmm. you know, he hands the baton off to the apostles. What did they teach? Mm-hmm. You know, is it congruent? Is it the same as what Jesus did? answer is yes they hand that baton off and never drops to the early church fathers and I love the early church fathers because we have so much or so of other writings you know scripture there's a lot there but the writings of the early church fathers every one of them you know promulgates this belief the truth that, that what Christ taught it all goes back to what Christ taught fourth leg is the church today we teach exactly what all these legs have taught all the way beginning with Jesus so there's consistency and continuity
0: Yeah, this is something that's very important. I've mentioned many times, it's not easy to find this book because it was printed in 1905 and it's out of print now. But there's a Protestant theologian named Darwell Stone who wrote The History of the Doctrine of the Eucharist. This is a Protestant. And he demonstrated in his book... The opposite of what my friend said. A matter of fact, I came up on that book. Right after my friend, he was down at my carol in the basement of the university library at Vanderbilt, and he said, oh, you Catholics made this up in the Middle Ages. I said, no, we didn't, but we were in the library and couldn't get into a big debate. <laughs> and I happened just to look up, and my eyes went right to the Darwell Stone book. Now, I think that's my guardian angel. You know, just just put, and I I took it out from the library, checked it out, checked it out. You didn't know anything about it at that time? Never heard of it. And here's this Protestant showing that every single father of the church and every theologian in the early Middle Ages taught the real presence of Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And the sacrificial nature of the mass. Both of those are present in every father. Nobody, nobody denied it until the 1050s A.D. And even that guy changed his mind. So once he got a good argument. So but you write there, and you, get, you give a summary. I mean, Darwin Stone had two volumes.
2: question I have for Darwin Stone, how come he didn't convert then? <laughs>
0: I know it. I know I I, yeah, I have no he's, idea.
2: He's, he's, he's dispensing the truth. He's sharing the truth. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah I know. Mystery. Oh, it, it was remarkable, yeah. remarkable book. Uh, I, I love it. I have a copy and uh, now got a used copy from a friend of mine. But it, you give a summary of that here. What are some of the highlights of that history? That, that's the overall history. What are some of your highlights of that history that you present here for the apologetics? History in what, what Well, the, the apologetics, you know, how the fathers taught this, that okay. real presence.
2: Oh, how the, specifically the church fathers? Yeah. yeah. Well, one of my favorite. First of all, I like to really think about just looking at the the the, the most the, the early church in its most recent or earliest forms. Like say, if I go into the apostles, I, I like to point to Saint Paul because Saint Paul was writing First Corinthians, for instance, yeah. just 20 years, 20 years there, give or take, after. Yeah. Christ died on the cross. Right. That's that's the church in diapers. You know that's that's total. And there you see plain as day his writings. You know, telling us that to right after he, he actually gives the the Last Supper uh, uh, discourse. You know, and then right after he's saying that that you cannot receive the the, the Eucharist unworthily. You must discern that it's his body. You must do an examination. 20 years afterward, why would you do that if it was just a, you know, a casual meal? Yeah. But the early church fathers, the same thing. I, I like pointing out the two, you know, two in particular because they're so early. The first I kind of hedge on, the Didache, you know, which is technically not a church
0: father. Yeah, but t- tell us what the Didache is. Right.
2: Well, it's a, it, in Greek, it, it means teaching, and mm-hmm. it, it was known as the teaching of the 12 apostles. Right. And it's recognized as the first liturgical manual. Some people will say it of the church, whether that's, but, but it's often tagged that way. Right. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Scholars say that it was written between 90 and 110 yeah. A.D.
0: Yeah, and some say even late 60s. Yeah, Seriously? Some, oh, wow. Oh,
2: yeah, that makes you, the story even better.
0: Yeah, some, some people put it as really as the late 60s. A number of others put right. it in the 90s to 110. Yep. But you know, it, it, it varies a uh, bit because... It doesn't have a date on it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Copyright.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but, but, but it's remarkable because in it there's a lot of like um, uh, liturgical things, uh, uh, how to baptize. And there's two chapters, chapter 9 and 14, that take on the Eucharist. And we say chapters, it's not like 10 pages each, it's like no. a paragraph each. But in chapter 9, you read it, and it starts out, it sounds like it's a Eucharistic prayer. It could have been the first Eucharistic prayer. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I I don't know. Uh, And then it it ends with saying that you have to receive the the, the Eucharist worthily. And then chapter uh, 14, it goes on to even kind of those same type of things, but it also says that you must confess your sins before receiving the Eucharist. You know, if you have anything going on with your neighbor, go rectify that before you partake. Why Coming would, right
0: out of Jesus' own teaching in the yes, Sermon on the Yes, but also,
2: again, a lot of what my book is kind of point, counterpoint. Here's what Catholics believe. Here's what the Protestant teaching is. You know, the Protestant teaching is this is just a communal meal. Right. And, of course, it just doesn't make sense to all this from Paul 20 years later to dedicate a little bit later that you have to, to examine, you have to receive worthily. If it was just a communal meal, you know, as far as yeah, that goes. Right. Yeah, so the, the dedicate, like I say, to me is just a great kind of proof source, if you will, because it is so early, and, and there it is, just, uh, you know, and then the, the next I like is, uh, go well, ahead.
0: Well, I was going to say, we need to take a little break. Sure. So we've passed the baton from Jesus to the apostles. Let's take the next step of the passing on the baton, and right after we come back from the break, and we'll take a look at how this teaching is consistent in the early church, and it's our task to pass this baton on again so please stay with us Welcome back. We are discussing a book called For Real, Christ's Presence in the Eucharist and it's by our guest, Deacon Dennis Lambert. Now you can get this at EWTNRC where it is item number 8539. 8539. And you, know, you, you might also, to, as a compliment to this book, take a look at my book, The Eucharist, a Bible study for Catholics, that these two will be complementary to each other. They'll cover different things, but they'll, they'll feed into each other, and that's useful for doing the task you have. You focus much more than I do on the fathers, and I'd like you to get back to that. You know, the, the St. Paul picked up the baton from our Lord and right. taught the Eucharist. In fact, his line... Uh, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes again. Is that, we use that in the liturgy yeah, as one of the acclamations. Right. It comes right from First Corinthians chapter 11. But then you mentioned the Didache, this very early liturgical instruction. Right. And then um, some of the other, uh, the, the next generation, uh, like St. Ignatius of and, Antioch, right. who died in... About 107 uh, AD, he was martyred in Rome, but he was from Antioch, Syria. Right. What was his approach to right. the Eucharist? Yeah, I, I love that's actually my leadoff,
2: you know, um, church father, if you will, in, in sure. the book because of the early dating. Not only because the early dating gives us so much more validity, not just the date, but who he was. He was ordained by Peter. He was a disciple exactly. of John. So he, he's at the feet For 20 years. learning from, For 20 from John, years. Mm-hmm. who wrote the Gospel of John, who was there at the Bread of Life discourse, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, what more reliable source do you have? So does, is, are his sentiments, what he writes, what he believes congruent with, you know, the apostles, with Jesus, mm-hmm. absolutely. In 107, he, w- he was on his way to be martyred, you know, and, and he wrote seven letters to, to his various churches. And we have those letters, mm-hmm. you know, to, to the church in Antioch. He writes about the, the body and blood. This is, the, I'm paraphrasing, this mm-hmm. is truly the, his body. And for, for, for he's saying what he yearns for to eat is the flesh of the, of the Eucharist, which is Christ himself, mm-hmm. the blood of Jesus. It's very cli-
0: plain as day. And, and he makes the point that it's the same body of Christ that died on the cross. Yes, thank you for helping me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> clarify yeah. That. That's a that's a, a a very important, you know, doctrine. Right. That's the same body. It's not some spiritual, you know, feeling. Right. It's the, that's the body of Christ that it, we celebrate in the Eucharist and we receive. Right. Then he also writes this, Marinians, you know, again about
2: the need. First of all, we think this is kind of a new thing in terms of people not believing the Eucharist. He he talks about in that letter about people who did not, do not believe in the real, I'm I'm paraphrasing He says, who have heterodox opinions of the Eucharist must not receive it. So even back then there was people who did not believe in the real presence. Well, why is he bringing it up if the, what the church, you know, if the church is teaching, you know, this is the real presence. So he brings that up and then he he brings up um, again, that it's only valid the Eucharist or or the, the, the breaking of the bread if it's presided over by a bishop or someone he appoints. Mm -hmm. Once again, if this is just a mere communal meal, none of this makes sense, you know.
0: And not only, but he says that you have to be in union with the bishop and the presbyterate. That that is the assembly of the priests and the deacons. Right. All this has to be done with the unity of the church. That's why a lot of people have trouble with our doctrine that, you know, we don't have open communion. No. There is a commitment to the church that this implies. And that's not medieval canon law, that's uh, early second century by a bishop ordained by St. Peter.
2: Yes, ex- exactly. And, and again, because I run into this all the time as a deacon, well not all the time, but I, I always get a little nervous at a funeral mass, especially if I don't know the, the priest as well who's presiding, because at such gatherings you have a lot of people who are not Catholic, right. you know, or who are away from the church. So I always, always make sure they ask. Father, you're going to say something before communion, you know, about because again, it's not fair. First of all, the Eucharist is you have to receive it worthily. You have to discern all these things that the early apostles still stand true today in in order to receive. But it's disingenuous for someone to receive as well on their own part because we believe something totally different if they're Protestant or whatever. That's right than what we believe. They're not doing, them. They're, they're kind of like being disingenuous, disingenuous to themselves, too, by receiving, them. they're probably not aware of it. And people get mad, well, I could, you know. Right. Yeah, you because know, you'll see people come up, and I, I have to address it, you know, if they don't look like, no, look what they're doing. Are, are you Catholic? No, let yeah. me give you a blessing, you know. You're yeah, right. Right.
0: And I, I said it on my radio show earlier today uh, when a similar question came up. I said, you know, I love the Canadians. And I love to go to Canada. It's a beautiful place, a wonderful place. But when I go there, I am not allowed to vote in their elections. And when they come here, they can't vote in our elections. Not because they're bad or we dislike them or look down on them, but there's an oath of allegiance to your country that you have to have before you have the right to vote. Right. You have to be a citizen. right? And the same in the Catholic Church. You have to be a citizen, committed. We pray for the Pope and the local bishop and all the bishops. You have to be in union with them. Right. And this is something that not everybody is. Nope. So Sadly. You know, and I, I said this the other day. It's not your doing and it's not my doing. We inherit a problem from 500 years ago. But we have to resolve the problem and not just ignore, well, we'll just be nice to each other. No, right. this is not a party favor. This is the body of Christ. Amen. So this is very important. Now, you know, we have just a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that we get to this part that you'd have that's extremely... Uh, this is the, the punch, I think, of your book. The baton was passed from Jesus to the apostles. We covered that with Paul and Didache. They passed it on to the next generation with Ignatius and Origen and these other people you mentioned. But then it's been passed on to us. What do we have to do now? What is the task at hand right now? The
2: fourth leg is the church of today. And and some people will will, will punt or defer that. With the church of today, you mean the priest and the, 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 the hierarchy. No. no. As I mentioned earlier, by our baptism, we are all called to partake in the mission of the church. So it's, it becomes on us. If, this, if everything we were talking about is true, and the Pew Research, frankly, some people will dispute it. Now, the number's that high. The, the sample size was too low. The questions were orientated to maybe have some of these negative responses. Even if that's true, even if you halved the number, of one-third, a half of that, don't, don't believe that's way too many.
0: Exactly.
2: And like I say, this is the the pinnacle of our faith. The Catechism teaches the source and summit of our faith. How can we stand idle while our brothers and sisters may not understand or believe, as I did, that that this is just a symbol? This is the most important thing because it's Jesus Himself. So we have you know, a mission to bring this forward. It doesn't mean going and clobbering everyone over the head and say, hey, do you believe in the real presence? Well, let me, you know, have a sandwich board about the, the real presence and standing on the street with a bell. No, but God will give you the opportunities. When you're prepared and you're ready, you have your radar up, mm-hmm. you will find your moments to, to share such things. Things come up in conversation. Mm-hmm. The problem a lot of people will have, and they'll say, well, Deacon, this is an awful deep topic. You know, my book is not big by, you know, apologetic yeah. standards. But even trying to to memorize or to to regurgitate everything that's in there as far as the apologetics, yeah, I understand. You you probably can't get that. And What I I put forward is a a way you can do this to simplify everything is actually going back to that relay format. Because if you think about, okay, four parts. What did Jesus teach? What did the apostles teach? What did the early church fathers teach? What does the church teach today? And if you just pick out one or two things, you know, from my book or any book about what, did you, you know, what proof do we have that the Eucharist is truly Jesus from Jesus' teachings. Mm-hmm. And then you, you say, and then you can even use that analogy because, again, the, the relay race shows continuity and consistency. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that's important.
0: You can't drop the baton no, it in doesn't a relay it. race. And it never does. You and know? you can't take a different baton. Right. And then call it, you, know, you have to take the, the baton that was handed on to you right. in order to win the race. Right. Is that correct? Exactly.
2: So basically, that, that it's, it's not really that complex, you know, in terms of how can I pass this on. Mm-hmm. Pick one, something on the topic of Jesus's, you know, what, what he taught. Pick one or two things about what the apostles taught. One or two things, you know, the early church fathers, and then something again from today. What, some, what does our catechism say? And then you have a package deal. It, it's, it's very sellable in a sense, you know, to pass it on because it makes sense. Is this true? Is, is, is it consistent? Well, Jesus taught it, it has to be. Does it stay the same? Does that teaching stay the same? What do we have as evidence? Just keep it short and brief. You know, it doesn't have to be everything that's packed in that book or any other apologetic book
0: couple things too i would say reading a number of books on this topic is a good idea yes repetition is the mother of learning. Oh, I need it. That's the only way I, I can remember
2: things. <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: <laughs> that and, and talking about it, speaking about it. Otherwise, I, I forget very easily.
0: Yes. You know, Doctor Brent Petrie has an excellent book on oh, the Eucharist. And the, yeah, it, it's he's superb. Right. it's superb. I try to give a just a focus on biblical passages. You know, because we we live in a uh, a Protestant culture. You know, even they don't go to church anymore. But It's a Protestant culture. That means religious discourse has to be biblical. So I focus on the Bible. You bring in a wider variety of topics here, but all of us are directing toward the same message uh, of we're all passing on the baton in slightly different styles, Mm -hmm. but it's the same baton. That's what's good about uh, your book and that you make it so clear one of the questions I have for you, though, were you aware when you wrote this that the bishops see the same problem and they were starting this period of three years no, of Eucharistic evangelization? That's divine intervention. You
2: know, I, when I, I started, I wrote it over the summer last year, had no clue about the Eucharistic revival, you know, and perhaps that's why I'm here, because it's a hot topic. I don't know the, the quality of the book or not, but. yeah, uh, no, yeah, no, no, yeah it's very good. I'm, I'm, yeah, but yes, yes, I, I had no idea. Of course, not, it, it is such a blessing that the church has come to this point where we say we need to blow this thing out, you mm-hmm. know. And if I may, too, one thing, Father, too. We're, been, we've been focusing on our Catholic brothers and sisters mm-hmm. who, who, who struggle with this teaching. Mm-hmm. I also want to touch base, too, on our Protestant brothers and sisters. Because mm-hmm. you, you, what you said there also registered in, in my my head is, you know, the story to them, to relay it to them, you have to be biblically based. And that's what, what I try to do. And most, most apologetics do. And I approach it with our Protestant brothers and sisters, not as here, you need to believe this, but so you have an understanding of what we believe. I have a lot of good friends that, that, that are, you know, very good, faithful Protestants, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and if they ask, you know, they, they hear about the book, they see the show or something like that. And You know, I wouldn't want them for a minute to think that I'm coming down on them at all. I would love to offer to them what it is that we believe, Mm -hmm. you know, and that it's scripturally based. Their eyes might go, scripturally based, the Catholic Church, what? And maybe they'll be interested in in taking a look.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think, and depending on the um, tradition of different denominations, some denominations have uh, no use for the fathers of the church. And they're just not interested in that continuity at all, but many other other denominations are very concerned. You know, John Calvin and Martin Luther cited the fathers. Certainly, right. the Anglicans and Episcopalians—they're very interested in the fathers of the church and that continuity from Jesus, the apostles, mm-hmm. and the later church. Um, And their their concern, I think, is that we may have misrepresented them. Uh, We may have misrepresented Scripture or the the early church. But, again, what you're bringing out is, no, we haven't. You know, we're consistent with that. We're passing on the baton, and we are very much staying with the tradition. And that's a, a very important part of your book. One of the other issues, too, though, in terms of, addressing Catholics, we saw this instituted in church architecture and in many of the hymns, that the focus for many Catholics from about 1970 was on the community experience. We formed churches in the round. We're all looking at each other many of our hymns are about us gathering ourselves together and we being the light of the world and we are doing this and we are and as i've often said we're congratulating god for being so lucky that we showed up in (laughs) church (laughs) true true you know that's, that's some of these hymns i i just wouldn't play um you
2: know, uh so well, hopefully a lot of them have been filtered out. But no, I went through that. That, that's like I said, I went through what I call the Wild West of Catholicism back in that. That's that's when I was growing up, you know. And I thank God. I mean, it was when I got to formation as a deacon, where again, these things were like I re- really made me to reflect back and say, you know, again, there there's there's beauty there too. The the the, the, the sense of community that's good. But when it it also takes over and becomes the liturgy, and then the Eucharist and other aspects of liturgy are lost or put on, you know, at a, on a second place level to that, then we have problems.
0: It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's marvelous autobiography called Surprised by Joy, that if you try to find joy and inner peace, you'll miss it hmm. because you're not finding joy In the source of the joy, which is God, you're not finding inner peace in the source of peace, which is God. You're trying to find the experience of joy or peace, but it has to come from someone, from God himself. This happened with community. We want to feel community and feel love for each other, which is good, like you said. But it can only exist if it's centered on Jesus Christ. It can't be centered on us because we gossip too much. <laughs> Very well put. <laughs> you know, this is it has to come from... And it's Jesus Christ present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, as the Council of Trent emphasized. That is what we come to Mass for. And we focus on Jesus, not on ourselves. And that's, uh, again, this is something you're bringing out very nicely. Uh, as I remember liturgists back in the 70s saying, we have to take the tabernacle out. The presence of the... A lot of, the, of churches were, they did. They moved them. Right. Really, out of sight, out of mind, really, is what yeah. happened. <laughs> and they said that the Blessed Sacrament is a distraction at Mass. I would say... The presence of Jesus is a distraction. Okay. Who's the main attraction here? Liturgical dance. <laughs> <laughs> God save us. <laughs> I remember the story. This bishop was doing a confirmation and he's standing next to the pastor up at the front by the altar at the beginning of the Mass. And this woman came dancing down the aisle with a salad bowl full of incense. And she's waving it around and dancing as she goes up the aisle. And the bishop turned to the pastor and said, if she asks for your head, she's got it. <laughs> Very good. But it's it's not that stuff. It's not us. It's Jesus that's the center. right? And that's, again, a key part of what you bring up. In this... You know, uh, time, uh, are you able to work with some of the pastors and bishops in teaching these things? Well, with my pastor, I
2: I, I, I speak, I go out on it. I'd like to get more involved. You mm-hmm. know, we just had a change of bishops, you know, within the Diocese of Phoenix. Yes, that's so right. So I've got to, you know. Uh, bishop Ohm said, actually, the, the, our former bishop, just a, a saint of a man, you know. Yeah, yeah. Actually, one of the greatest blessings I ever received is his endorsement on the back of the book. So, nice. yeah, so I am not still have to learn a little bit more about our new bishop and have a relationship sure. with him. But, yes, sure, sure, I'm available.
0: Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is, and, you know, as a deacon, you have a privileged position to be able to speak for the church. But, again, to get this in the hands of lots of people, to discuss that at the ba- the dinner table. Amen. You're right? Right. Talk to your kids about it. Exactly. This is the faith that the martyrs died for. Right. And this is worth, worth doing. Well, this is
2: certainly a potent form to, to, do, to do this, to get the word out. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So this is a good thing. Again, this book is called, For Real, Christ's Presence in the Eucharist. It's written by our guest tonight, Deacon Dennis Lambert. IT'S ITEM NUMBER 8539. IT'S AVAILABLE AT EWTNRC.COM. AND I THINK DR. BRENT Petrie's BOOK IS THERE. Uh, ALSO MY BOOK ON THE BIBLE STUDY, THE EUCHARIST, THE BIBLE STUDY. THESE AND OTHER BOOKS ARE AVAILABLE FOR YOU TO READ AND GET DIFFERENT PERSPECTIVES AND GET DOWN TO THAT BUSINESS. Thank you, Deacon. Oh, thank you for having me, Father. We very much appreciate you being here with us and writing this fine book. And today, as I mentioned, is the Feast of St. Andrew. I have a relic of the great St. Andrew. And may the Lord bless you. And by the intercession of St. Andrew, keep you faithful to a teaching on the Eucharist. As he brought the loaves and fish to Jesus, may we also bring Jesus to the rest of the world. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, we can do this show and all our shows because it's brought to you by you, keeping us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill to pay our bills too. Thank you.